attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Dennis Rosen and I'm your host for this trip down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded in 1928. Today's guest on the podcast, Christopher L. Thomason. Christopher has a very interesting story as he was never a camper and became a staff man all into college. I certainly hope that you're going to enjoy listening to this. I'm excited about presenting him. Oh, by the way, OJ90, go online, OJ90, the 90th reunion of camp on May 6th. There'll be a Friday night, May 5th event also at the former Joy of the Game. We know that over 500 people will be in attendance. It's a tribute to Al, to Mickey, and to Denny, myself, but Al and Mickey are the keys to this. So please, if you haven't already gotten your ticket, do so now. Here we go. Chris Thomason on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. First and foremost, please say your name, years at camp. My name is Christopher L. Thomason, and uh, my first year at camp was 2000, and I'm still going strong. How'd you get to camp? So uh, between, uh, for you, the listening audience, between Denny and I, we talk about this story because we have two different views on how I got to camp. But the story I know is this. I was uh, an RA in college, which is a resident advisor, which means that you... uh, you live in a college dorm. Which college? At the University of Kentucky. Go Wildcats. We've won a few basketball championships. I don't know if you're First aware. First time in collegiate week, too. First time in collegiate week this year. We just officially announced that right here, right now, right then. Amazing. Scoop. Um, so I was at college, I was at the University of Kentucky, and it was my first year being an RA. And the great thing about being an RA, you look out for a group of guys, you know, you, you, sort of like being a camp counselor, but they give you free room and board, which is awesome. Don't have to pay anything, living for free. Great. And somewhere around February, it occurs to me that they don't give me free room and board for the summer. (laughs) I hadn't thought of it prior to that moment. So I was like, well, what kind of jobs would give me room and board for the summer so I could just fill in the the spaces? And I was a theater guy, so I was like, well, I could work in in like a summer stock theater. I was like, oh, maybe like a a summer camp that teaches theater. That'd be good. Because then, you know, it's like summer camp. It's fun. That must be a fun place to go. So I go online and I find a website. That's a bulletin board where you can leave a resume for camps who are looking for people. And then camps go there and they look at the resumes and they pick people up. Again, it's February. It's not even Valentine's Day yet. So I write up a quick resume, throw it up there. Don't even think about it. I've literally thought about this whole thing for about 10 minutes. Two hours later, my phone rings. Hello? Teddy Rosen on your telephone. 
Hi, Denny Rosen. So first he calls. He says, Denny Rosen, on your telephone. How you doing? Love you. I'm going to call your references. I'll call you right back in 10 minutes. And he called me back in five minutes. And that happened before we had any conversation about the job. So Denny calls, and he explains that Camp Ojibwa has got a great history and amazing food. And mostly we have this music and drama program that is really important to us, but has been a little bit lost for a few years and really needs some strong leadership to come in. And he said, you know, normally I'd pay you this much, but because you're already in college and you already have some experience in the field, I want to pay you this much, which was more than the first number, which is excellent. And he said, uh, but I need to know in 24 hours. 23 hours later, Denny Rosen, on your phone, what do you say? And I was like, okay, I don't know, okay. This guy, I, if you know Denny, you know that he can, uh, he can be persuasive. And it worked, and I was like, okay, I'm in. So over the next couple of months, I start receiving uh, some, e- some mail, some physical mail, telling me to prepare for camp and some pamphlets. And these are all the kinds of things that normally would be sent to campers. But, you know, as a new staff man, they just out of kindness send it to me too. But I'm reading, I'm going, huh, it seems like there, hmm, seems like there's a lot of activities here that aren't music and drama. And so I show up first night of pre-camp. And in those days for pre-camp, we would have a big bonfire. And every staff man would stand up, introduce themselves. Because we had a lot more international staff at that time and other staff from different colleges and stuff. So people get to know each other. They'd stand up, say their name and what they're there for. 75 people stood up and said their name and what they were there for before me. (laughs) Not a soul had said theater. And I realized that I was now the theater guy at a sports camp. (laughs) But as it turns out, it worked out pretty well. So that is how I came to Camp Ojibwe. So that's how you got there. But why did you stay there? Uh, I didn't. Uh, my first year, I met a, a girl at camp. And a what? <laughs> I, met a, I met a lovely nurse at camp my first year. And I didn't understand um, the way that camp is sort of magical in how a person has, in, in interpersonal relationships, you know, at camp. And this is not just romantic, but in general, you know, if you know someone for a day, it's like knowing them for a month. And if you know them for a month at camp, it's like knowing them for years. And I didn't, I wasn't really in tune with that yet. So I was dating this girl at camp and it just seemed like it was so great. And it seemed like, oh, I mean, we've been dating forever. This is wonderful. So we made plans in the ensuing off season to get married. And we had decided we were going to get married in the summer. So neither of us reapplied to camp because we thought we'd take that summer off to get married. And then we'd figure it out from there. What did you, how did you ask her to marry you? And what did you give her? (laughs) Uh, well, the the funny part of that story is that, um, and I want to lead by saying, this girl is a very sweet girl. She's a real sweetheart. However, at the time, uh, she was very interested in being married. I didn't necessarily know it right then, but she had been engaged right before me. And uh, spoiler alert, she'll be engaged after me pretty quickly as well. Uh, she was just really ready to get married. And so I liked her and I was sort of on board for what was going on. And so uh, after camp, I went home to Kentucky, still going to school, and she uh, lived in Chicago. So every couple of weeks, she'd either drive down for the weekend or I'd drive up and we'd stay together for a little while. And so that was kind of how the relationship was rolling for the first few months. And then uh, around the first week of October, I came up for a visit. And on Friday night, she says, I want to take you to the soup kitchen where I used to volunteer. I think it'd be fun for us to go volunteer and you can meet all these, you know, these people I used to work with and stuff. It'll be called like, great. Sounds awesome. And we go in and the first person we see is the boss. And she's like, oh, I'm going to introduce you to my boss. Come on, let's go. She says, you know, Chris, this is Joe. Uh, Joe, this is my fiance, Chris. 
And uh, I was like, oh, uh, <laughs> we should probably talk about that. Now, a sane, normal person would say, what? What are you talking about? We haven't talked about any of that. But I was not a sane, normal person at the time. And in the back of my head, I said, oh, shit, I better go buy a ring. You can feel free to, like, if you want to respond or, or interact during the story, you well, can, I, by the way. I had a little tick you when you said at the time you were not a sane, normal person. That's, a, that's re- making one think that you are now a sane and normal person, which <laughs> is de- very debatable, Chris. Well, I, what I can say is that at this moment, if that happened to me again, if a girl who I was not engaged to introduced me as her fiancé, I would, I would step up and say, excuse me. So if she was a tall, beautiful, unbelievable body, redhead. Well, I would say, excuse me, I don't know your ring size yet, but that's great. That's more like it. So the next trip up, I came up, I, I, I got a ring and I was like, oh, I better do this. You got a ring? I went and bought it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I got a stone. <laughs> You're killing me. Come on, Chris. Uh, so I... I, my, uh, my father passed away a, f- a few years before that, and uh, I asked my mother to let me have the stone from her wedding ring f- from my father. There you go. And I put that stone in a new platinum setting uh, and, uh, and came to Chicago, and we went to see the Blue Man Group. And after we saw Blue Man Group, we came back, and I put on a little music. And, I, and it, the terrible thing is, like, I probably spent about 10 minutes in the asking portion of the, of the thing, and I couldn't tell you right now anything I said. It uh, Unfortunately, it was, you know. So I asked her, and she said yes, of course. And, and then this went on, so we would still go back and forth uh, every few weeks. And over Christmas, I came and actually lived there for about three weeks. And that was probably the time where I realized, oh, my God, this is a horrible mistake. <laughs> this is this is not working out at all. And uh, And then so over the next couple of months, it really kind of, split apart and we were really right like right on the cusp of like oh it's time to make deposits and send out invitations and things like that and and uh luckily i was able. how to. uncomfortable was it asking for the ring back uh actually i will say not and uh and that is incredible um because it should have been but she knew where the stone came from and that we had had a conversation interestingly enough that she had actually initiated before that where she said you know if anything ever happens, no matter whose fault it is, I'm not going to keep, you know, this is yours and it's your family thing and stuff. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. Let's get back to camp. <laughs> thank God. So. P.S. I've never why seen her. I've never seen her again. Camp? So you were asking why I came back. And so wait. And so. And that, you said you right. didn't. So I did. And so then you went off on that tangent about. Well. Falling in love and getting <laughs> married. So the thing was, you know, we broke up like around spring break. And, I, and? and so camp was still ahead. But in my mind, uh, she had been at camp the year before I was. And I just, I, you know, I didn't know enough about camp. So I thought, well, everyone at camp's going to take her side in this. Because A, she was there before me. And B, I broke her heart. So they don't want me back. So I didn't even call. I didn't try. I didn't, nothing. And uh, camp came and went. I was... Uh, Al Futransky is probably the only guy from camp that I even talked to in that off season. Um, I really had sort of, you know, said, okay, I mean, I had a great time, but I guess that's it. And during that time, also that summer, uh, I was preparing to move to New York. So I had finished up school and I was going to New York to get my master's. So I moved to New York and 
It's probably what, what was your study? What did you uh, get theater. your undergraduate uh, and master's in? Uh, I'm a theater guy. So my undergrad is just a general theater uh, and then with an emphasis on directing and then my master's is in directing. And so I get to New York and it's about February and I haven't, I've, haven't lived there very long at all. I moved in January of 2002 uh, and I get a phone call and it's like, hey, Denny Rosen. <laughs> Denny Rosen, what's going on? I don't know, champ. You tell me. What's going on? Uh, well, I moved to New York. I'm having a great time. Um, you know, up here getting ready to start chasing my masters. Uh, what's what's going on with you? I don't know. I'm just thinking about the summer. What's, uh, you got plans for the summer? No. No, I don't. <laughs> you ready to come back? Yes, I am. And that was it. And so I came back. I was back in cabin two, where I'd been my first year. And uh, I didn't. I just made the right call from a gut feeling, and that was it. When did the switch go on? Well, the switch, the switch was like, this is something that you would like to think more about doing. That moment, the moment of that phone call and the invite back and how I felt right in that moment was, was a big part of it because – I don't think I'd realized how much I missed what it was. And I don't think I had acknowledged how much it did mean to me. Cause part of that was, you know, this girl was connected to it and this girl you know, ended up kind of being, a, you know, not a great thing. Uh, and so a little bit of that was sort of hung up in that. It was hard to, to separate the two things. Cause I had just had that one summer and she was a big part of it. Uh, and then when I came back, uh, I was moving in and I, I pulled up my car and I was getting my stuff out. And Scott Matazar, who was had been a camper my first year uh, in 14, and he was now a second-year junior counselor, he's one of the first guys I saw. And certainly the first guy I saw that really remembered me. He's like, hey, how you doing? I was like, oh, I'm good. Whatever. He's like, no, how you doing? And there's something about that moment. They're like, oh, that's what this is. He cared. He cared that he actually was asking me that for real because I wasn't just some guy who came and worked there for a year. Like, we had a good connection. And it mattered. And that really sort of started the ball rolling. It was that, that moment. When he said that to me, I was like, okay. So how difficult was it for you to be able to keep on coming back to camp? Sort of like a nomadic existence. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say difficult if you don't think that completely uprooting your life every nine months is difficult. Uh, New York, I was there for, to, you know, to go after my master's but also uh, freelancing and working in theater work. And I actually ended up working a couple of years doing that before I started the master's program. So once I was in the master's program, no big deal. But before that, you know, it's trying to find steady work. It's also that you can eat and also find theater work. And then, you know, every time I come to camp, I have to end up giving up an apartment and finding a brand new place to live. So the first few years in particular were difficult. And New York's not a cheap place to live. And that was part of it too. But luckily the, uh, you know, actually my camp paycheck helped, helped make it all work. So it started to sort of piece it together. And then, uh, later on in the years after grad school, I sort of learned a little better how to, I found some seasonal stuff that became a very regular seasonal stuff. And I can kind of line those up piece after piece. And that made it more, uh, more realistic. Why but, didn't you ever go back and become a, a professor or a teacher so that you would always have your summers free? Well, uh, I pursued my master's and in directing. In directing, right. And so 
I feel like that's on the table. I did teach uh, where I did my master's. I taught for the next following year. Uh, and I feel like it, it I, I wouldn't even say it's off the table necessarily, you know, even today. But I don't know. I was I was not in New York to be a teacher. At that, I was in New York to pursue the thing. I could teach it anywhere. I could teach theater to anybody. So you still had the itch to be in New York. Yeah. And and even even then, it was less. New York was just the place that I had to be for the thing that I wanted to do. To if you want to be a theater person in this country, there's only a pocket, a handful of places to really, really do it, and so that you can make. A give us, of. give us a little uh, summary of some of the things that you were able to accomplish in New York. <laughs> well, uh, one of the first theater companies I got hooked up with ended up being one of my longest relationships there. The very second show I worked on, I worked with a guy named Tim Erickson. Uh, I worked as a stage manager for Tim. Tim had his own company, and uh, we just had an incredible relationship right away basically based on my love for Kentucky basketball and my hatred for Duke basketball and his love of Duke basketball, even though he never went to school there. So stick it. Anyway, uh, so that was great. And then I directed for that company for several years, and I was the associate artistic director there for a long time. And then I went on and did some other stuff as well. I had uh, It really is a, a town of who you know and connections, um, probably the most high-profile thing it did. I, I assisted uh, Greg Moser on Broadway in a production of A View from the Bridge with Scarlett Johansson when she won the Tony for her first Broadway show and uh, Jessica Hecht and Leah Schreiber and you know some famous names and stuff but it was really cool to sort of be to work in the Broadway environment and to work with a director who had his Did own this stoke your fires to want to keep going sure of course yeah and uh you know and then as I went forward I, I did some writing and uh, I worked uh, for Hanover College in Indiana for a couple of years, which was a really cool gig. I came in and wrote a traveling show for their their college actors. So I wrote the show, came in, directed it, and then they toured it around all summer. And they were uh, educational shows. And the last few years, you've had a very uh, prestigious position. So in uh, the winter of 2007, actually, uh, I my friend Adam Miller in uh, in New York, he knows that I have a penchant for ridiculous jobs like I like to I want my resume to say I've had ridiculous jobs does that include camp of course are you kidding (laughs) it wouldn't include camp if I'd gone once but once you've gone like 10 years they go okay I mean what do you like your whole adult life you're going to summer camp then that counts and he he forwarded me an ad for a job one day and it said Santa Wrangler I thought well what what the hell does that mean (laughs) and so I went and I applied for this job and what it was is uh at Macy's in New York is the home of the one and only Santa Claus. Perhaps you've heard of him. Perhaps not, depending on, you know, what you dig. But uh, Santa Claus comes down from the North Pole every Christmas, and he delivers presents to all the children, and then goes back. And so the one and only, the real Santa, actually comes down for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade every year, which, of course, most of you probably have watched on TV. And at the end of the parade, you see Santa. And then, what you may or may not know, is that right after the parade, he walks into Macy's, and he stays there during the days for the next four weeks. At night, he has to go back to the North Pole, because there's a lot of toys to be made right before the time. But for the next four weeks, he's there every day. And about 200,000 people will come through and sit on his lap, take pictures with him. And it's a really cool event. It's not just a, a chair with Santa on it. There's a whole event inside the building. So the Macy's store in the middle of New York is their flagship store. It takes up an entire city block. And Santa Land takes up about a third of one floor. So this giant space inside Macy's. And you go through and you meet elves. We have hundreds of elves are there that come down from the North Pole every night and and work and animatronics and and all kinds of stuff. And the coolest thing is we're going to take pictures of people and they can buy the pictures and everything, but, but we don't charge for anything. 
And if you want to just bring your own camera and take your own pictures, we don't care. That's fine. It really is, in its own way, a big Christmas gift to New York City. And so uh, I, was, I started out as Santa's manager, and then after a couple of years, I moved up to being uh, the manager of the whole thing. And uh, it was pretty awesome. Uh, you still must have an affinity because you keep referring to it as we. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's... Is that a sense of personal pride in it, or do you miss it, or why? Why use that uh, term, we? Uh, it's definitely a sense of personal pride. Um, it, not unlike summer camp, is the kind of job where the biggest goal at the end of the day, at the end of the Santa Land work day, your goal is to make children happy. And that's it. No matter, I, I don't have to sell anything. If I sell a million pictures, if I sell zero, it doesn't matter. Our goal is to make people happy. And I got this big dude in red with a beard and I got a hundred elves, and we're all doing the same thing. We're just making kids happy. And specifically, responsibility was to schedule, organize, oversee, evaluate what? All the above. Uh, I would come in. I started at the top of the season. I set up the scheduling. I hired all the elves. Uh, I hired Santa. Did you have any function in the parade? Uh, yeah. So during the parade, uh, I was sort of Santa's body man. So I would help him up into his sleigh along with the misses and a few elves. And uh, I would walk alongside the sleigh for the whole parade each year. I tried to smoke a cigar while walking down the parade route. They, they shut me down. On so that back one. up a little bit. While you were, uh, one of your uh, interests is wrestling. <laughs> and you worked at the WWE uh, restaurant. I did, yes. My first. Tell us a little about that. Because <laughs> many of us are wrestling fans. Sure. Uh, professional wrestling, of course. Now, I know you're a fan of all, all types, but uh, uh, my first New York City job, I worked at the, at the then WWF New York, which, um, if you uh, go to New York now, is the Hard Rock Cafe in the middle of Times Square. But giant space right at the corner of 43rd Street and Broadway. They would have, anytime there was a Monday Night Raw, or Thursday SmackDown, or any kind of a pay-per-view, they had big events all those times. They would have concerts in the venue. Basically, every wrestler that was wrestling would come through. On any of those event nights, they would have one wrestler assigned to go to the restaurant that night and sign autographs. And it was just fun. I mean, if you got that sort of thing and dug it, it was super fun. Who'd you think was super cool? Uh, that's Oh, that's interesting. Um, in general, I would say that they all were really cool about doing it because I think it's a tough thing. Instead of being on the show and wrestling that night, you're signing autographs at a restaurant. I can see where that could suck. Uh, Big Show was incredible. And Big Show was one of the guys who like would go out of his way to go around to people's tables and like have real interaction with people. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Not as big as you'd think. Not as much bigger as me than you'd think. I mean, ev- all wrestling... He was 6'7"? Oh, he was 6'7", but he's been built pounds? at 7 foot 500 is right. the thing. <laughs> he was 6'7", he was 6'8", six, six, and probably at that time about 400. Um, but yeah, he was... So he was a good guy. Yeah, I mean, I w- there's no one who was a real jerk, but I would say there were a few that really went out of their way to How make about it some special. Of the divas? Oh my god! So, the probably the biggest moment I ever missed because of summer camp. Now, I got some shit from my friends in New York who'd be like, "Why do you go away every summer? You, like, you're hurting your career. You're not working here. You're like bullshit. You don't understand. This thing is important. This thing is more than that." But there was one day, one moment that I really missed out, and that is the. Uh, in those days, the, the WWE Divas, and at that time it would have been like Stacey Keebler, Tori Wilson, Lita, Trish Stratus, some very attractive women. They shot a uh, 
not unlike the Victoria's Secret catalog special, they shot a Divas lingerie special, and they shot it at the WWF New York. And so when I got back, I have all my buddies telling me how, oh, the girls are so cool, they don't care, they're just naked everywhere, they're like changing their lingerie in the kitchen, and we're walking through, we're like, oh, oops, and so that, that one day. I well, was... I heard you made up for that by going the Highwood Redhead day. <laughs> uh, it's... What's that all about? Well, uh, if you know me, you know I have an affinity for redheads. And that is my favorite thing. So if you know any nice redheaded girls here on the North Shore, I am available, ladies. Uh, and so there's this international redhead festival that uh, is in Europe. And I want to say it's in it's somewhere in the UK. I'm not exactly sure. And also in... Well, hold on. so it had been going on for a few years. And this guy who goes to it and is a big fan of it, who is from here, wanted to bring it to America. So a couple of years ago, uh, he set up the first American version of it in Highwood. And uh, it was literally the day we were picking up staff and taking them to camp. But I was able to sneak over for a couple of hours. How'd it go? It was great. I mean, it was, uh, it was a celebration of everything redhead. You have a, a nickname at camp. <laughs> but no one can figure out how you got it or why you have it. What is that nickname? Well, I mean, I think you can figure out why I have no, it. I that's mean, there's what no I'm question. No. Your nickname is... Big sexy. Big sexy, yes. Uh, well, that actually sort of connects to wrestling, too. Uh, many moons ago, I was working in a restaurant. During college, I, I worked as a waiter, off and on. And I didn't know it, but uh, there were these two girls who were roommates, and they both were interested in me. I, did, I honestly did not know it. I didn't know it until long, long later. And they started calling me Big Sexy at work. It, and it kind of stuck, like because obviously it's a nice nickname. I didn't mind it. Uh, but it became like a regular thing. So like we'd go in and, and we were assigned to sections in a restaurant and my name would be Big Sexy. And the tickets They'd were... They'd ask for you. Yeah, not only would they ask for me, but like... When, by, by the name of Big Sexy. 100%. My tickets that went back to the kitchen and had the name of the server on it just said Big Sexy. I mean, everything except my paycheck was basically Big Sexy at that point. So it kind of stuck and that was great. Uh, fast forward to uh, about a year later... I went to a big wrestling event called Starcade, and it was in 1996. So Starcade 96. And if you're a wrestling fan, you'll know that this was the event where uh, Roddy Piper had come back out of retirement to fight because Hulk Hogan had become a bad guy. And, Rowdy Roddy. And Rowdy Roddy, rest in peace. Rowdy Roddy had come back to finally help vanquish Hulk, this new evil Hulk Hogan in the NWO. And this was when Sting was hanging out in the rafters dressed like the Crow and the event was in Nashville, which was sort of close enough for us to drive. So I and a couple of buddies loaded up, and we drive down to the event. And it was great. We had a great time. And after the show, we're leaving, and we hear some guys go, oh, there's Sting. He just got in his car. He's headed toward the hotel. We're like, well, we're, we're going. So we hop in our car. We take off after him. And it was awesome because now we're in the hotel, and all these guys are coming through. And the wrestlers are all super nice. They're coming up, shaking hands, signing autographs, whatever you want. Uh, but we're waiting for the NWO because that's the big deal. So you got, you know, Hulk, Hollywood Hulk Hogan, you got Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Six Pack, uh, and they're with the big show at the time who was called The Giant. He, had, he was part of them, but he kind of messes up that night, and that's when he gets kicked out. So we're sitting around like, that's the big deal when they arrive. We know. We're waiting. We're waiting. And uh, so Hall and Nash show up, and they get out of their cars, and Hogan, and they're getting out, and they're going in, and – it's clear they're kind of like not into this. They're not going to hang out for the fans. And uh, we're like, are you going to sign autographs and whatever? And, and Hall's like, uh, I got a beer in this hand and uh, I got a bag in this hand. Uh, I guess I'll have to come back down later. So like, it's just, they're not going to stop. They're just going in, going in. So I yell, hey, big sexy. And Kevin Nash turns around. He's like, what'd you say, man? 
It was like, well, where I'm from, they call me Big Sexy, but standing next to you, I guess I give it up. Because Kevin Nash is the size of me standing next to me with me sideways on top of us. <laughs> like, he's huge. He's like, Big Sexy. I like that. We'll be back later. Obviously, they never came back. But seven months later, on TV, he came out calling himself Big Sexy. So you actually... Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash. So, I mean, I did. Who was his tag team partner? Scott Hall. Sad, isn't it? He's come a long way. Scott Hall's, uh, he's back on, he's back on track. He's been. Yeah. If he could say. Yeah. He's sober and he's got the hip surgery. So all of his life experiences that you have. (laughs) Yes. Just just to name a few. Let's bring him to camp. Let's do it. Um, at, At camp, we try to create the most healthy environment. The biggest problem that we have at camp are getting people not to cross the line, but to figure out how to help their brothers. How have you been able to assimilate into that camp environment as basically being an outsider? I know this is more of a serious question, no, but it's, it's important to me. Uh, it's hard. And I've touched on it a few times over the, year, over the course of the podcast talking about it, but um, if you come into camp and you're not a camp, if you're not a camp Ojibwe guy, it's, it's tough to get in. And coming in as the theater guy and not a guy who was going out and dunking and, and you know, helping win the game against Kawaga, that, that probably would have helped. But I wasn't the big sports guy. I like sports. I play a little sports. But camp wasn't the place for that for me. I was there for other reasons. And so I didn't have that to help either. That wasn't, there was no crutch to lean on. So it did take a tough time. And I guess that there just kind of came a point, you know, and it connects to that story about Scott Matazar and asking the question. There came a point where uh, there's a saying that my camp boss uses often, and I like it, and I've used it many times in my personal life, and it goes that they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it sort of worked backward for me, that I didn't care to be a part of the circle until I knew how much they cared. And then once I did, all I wanted was to be in. So where do you see yourself? Five years regarding camp. <laughs> well, uh, uh, what's your role now? Where have you, from 2000 to miss 2001, so from right. 2002 you've been at camp consecutively. Yes. And you have risen from being? Uh, well, my first couple of years I was a cabin two camp counselor, and uh, I helped run the Jubilee and, and the Maramita play. And then play. you progressed to? Then I moved to cabin 14 and moved in with Elliot and Snower. I wouldn't. I would say, you want to change that terminology. <laughs> Which part? Moved in with, <laughs> or co-consulate. Yes, uh, I I joined the staff of Cabin Fourteen. Much um, better. Uh, which I I respect is a huge honor that I jumped from cabin two to cabin 14. And at that time, no one else, no one except Elliot and Snower had been in cabin 14 as counselors since its beginning. So I took that as a, a huge honor for me personally. And over the next few years with working, uh, Snower wouldn't stay there forever, but working with Elliot specifically, I learned a lot about how to be a better counselor and how to be a better leader. Because in cabin 14, you're, it's a different program than what we're doing with cabin two. Cabin two is fun and they're great and they're kids and whatever. But in cabin 14, we're helping mold the next set of junior counselors. We're helping teach leadership. We're helping instill these guys with the philosophies of camp that maybe they've never been grown up enough to think about before, but also in how to, uh, how to pass it on to the next generation, how to teach them to then go into cabin two and pass it along. And so my years with Elliot specifically, 
I, I was able to sort of really absorb from him, who had now 40 years of staff experience, how he did it, how he was doing it over age 60 and still connecting with 16-year-olds. And it was a huge educational experience for me. And then when Elliot moved out of the cabin, while it was emotionally traumatic for him to some degree because, you know, he'd been in the cabin for a long time and it was tough for him to let go, uh, it was huge for me because I moved into then taking over the cabin and being in control and, and being in control of that program and being able to make a bigger impact on camp because I was running the program of the oldest kids that would then become our staff. So this year we have uh, 36, 34 kids in cabin 13. 30 and 32. 30 and 32. What are your plans for that? <laughs> well, we've been there before. We've had, we have had as many as 35, and I will say that was, that was not the best of ideas. Uh, but we can do 32. And it's different than having a smaller cabin, uh, but it's not worse. It's just different. Um, the only things that are worse are amount of time in the showers <laughs> and general cleanliness because when you put 30 people in a room instead of 15 it's just harder to keep things clean do you have do you, do you allow the kids to help make decisions regarding activities programs yeah so? absolutely uh, that's one of the beautiful things about 14 we tell them right up front uh, we're not there to be their counselors we're there to to li- to be their friends but more than that we are however many of us there are including the counselors we're just a bunch of guys living in a house together and we will treat it that way until we can't but when it comes to group decision-making, we're all in on it. When it comes to, you know, and it, even not just yes and no, but things that we, the counselors, don't think about and the kids want to do, absolutely. Let's talk about it. So where are you at now in terms of camp, in terms of your own growth and position? Well, uh, just to keep that timeline going. So uh, along around the time that I took over the cabin, I also uh, took over all the video and uh, website work for camp. And that increased the amount of just stuff I had to do, particularly right at the end of camp, because that's kind of when it all happens uh, for the video work. And that first year... Clarify, video and yearbook? I said video and website, but sure, the, the website, the yearbook, taking the photos, posting the photos, editing the photos, editing all the video. We shoot, uh, these days we probably shoot about 100 to 120 hours of video over the course of a summer. How many pictures are generally posted each year in uh, camp? In a year, we'll post somewhere between sixteen and 18,000 photos, and uh, we will go well into the hundreds of thousands of views on those over the website, which is super cool. Um, so when I took all of that on, I was super, I really, I, I love it, and I still love it. It's one of my favorite things I do at camp, but that first year, the last week of camp, I was just over, I just had run out of time. I just had so much to do. And you're like, you know what might be fun? Why don't you stay for post camp? You have a few extra days, you can finish up your work, and then you can, you know, just hang out. Okay, uh, and my camp experience changed dramatically in about eight hours because the first year I stayed, I saw, oh my God, here's this other thing. I had always heard guys, oh, camp's eight weeks, and that's it. Everything else is just fluff. Eight weeks, that's what real camp is. And I bought into that. I was like, okay, sure. But the first time I stayed, I saw, oh my God, this is a whole other world. And these are people, I mean, the first week of post-camp has families who've been there for 40 years. And... Some kid who's been at camp for 10 is telling him, oh, this is my place. I run the show. And this guy has been here for 40. He's like, really? Because <laughs> I was running the show before your dad was alive. Uh, it just opened up my mind to a bigger, th- a bigger picture of what camp means. And I mean that in sort of a uh, figurative sense. Like it's not just not literal, but a bigger picture of what the camp influence on all of us is. 
and I loved post-camp and I still love post-camp. And so from that point on, I've stayed for post-camp and I took on these extra jobs. And then uh, a few years later, uh, and I hope we'll get into this in more detail, but I had a really good idea about trying to find a way to sort of capture and record the history of camp in a way. Hold on there for a second. You did have that idea. And uh, the listeners should know that you and I spent a lot of time together and discussing things whether it's uh, out at a camp campfire site or on my back porch. And uh, as I recall, this all came about smoking a cigar on my patio about your idea to preserve the history. Uh, sure. Well, if we're going to get off the Was time. Was it there? Uh, well, n- sort of. Um, Did I get off the topic? Yeah. <laughs> that's too bad. Well, that's fine. Uh, when I first got to camp, one, of the, one thing I noticed was that uh, we're a camp that's big on tradition, big on, and we got a we got a mess hall full of plaques to prove it. But when I got handed my staff manual, the second page of the staff manual said the history of Camp Ojibwa, and it was two paragraphs. And I thought, well, that's confusing. Here's a camp that, I mean, obviously the history is the important thing here, and we only spend two paragraphs telling anybody about it. So that had always sort of been in the back of my mind. That's that's weird, and. Over the years, as podcasts became a thing, uh, I started listening to podcasts pretty regularly. I'd say on a daily basis around probably 2005, uh, which is pretty early in the days of podcasts. But I really dug the whole medium. I thought it was great sort of on-demand informational radio of the stuff I wanted to hear. And the kinds of podcasts that particularly appealed to me were long-form interviews, one-on-one, about topics I like. So primarily the big one is WTF with Mark Maron, which is maybe one of the most famous podcasts in the world. Um, Colt Cabana, uh, guys who just sit down with a person and, and the whole sort of field of what they're going to talk about is some field you're into. So that was a piece of it. And I even uh, started that with Marshall Domash came to visit camp several years ago. Uh, Marshall, who has now passed, but he had come to visit camp, I'm going to say probably now, maybe seven years ago, eight years ago. And we were going to, uh, we interviewed him out at the camp campfire site. Noah interviewed, Noah Andre interviewed him. Why is he significant? Stage. Well, he's significant. He was, he was one of our last original campers who was still alive at the time. And he was able to come to camp and, and he took questions from the crowd and everything. And that day, uh, JD Williams loaned me his snowball microphone and I plugged it into my iPad. And it was the first time I ever recorded something for what would eventually become the Camp Ojibwe History Project. I, it was, it was the ideas that I had had were, I was finally finding a way to, to, do a thing with it for the first time. So that was the, mo- the moment it began, really. Um, and then the, the real impetus, I guess, when it all finally clicked in on what it would really be uh, was when Disnitzkin passed away. There's a group of guys, and I may have talked about this on the podcast, but I don't care. It's my podcast. I'm going to tell you the whole story. Uh, there was a group of guys, are a group of guys, who still come up every summer and Campers call them the old timers. The old timers call themselves the boys of summer. So whichever name you want to use is fine. And most of those guys have been here and interviewed right here on these microphones before. And uh, they come up and they hang out for a weekend and they don't intrude on camp in any way. They just come and be a part of it. And it's amazing. And And it's another one of those things that really opens your eyes to what camp is when you watch these men who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, et cetera come in and just fit right in, slide right into camp like it's nothing. They go and they officiate a ball game. They sit around on the camp, on the uh, collegiate week bench. 
They got they have shtick going in the mess hall. Like they're just there, like they're campers. And uh, that sitting out at the collegiate week bench is one of those activities that has been around camp since the very beginning. That bench has been in that place since the 30s, and it's always been a congregation place at camp. And guys sit out there and. need to breathe for a second we'll caught up um why don't you let's take a break right now get some water we'll come back in a minute we don't we don't do that we're just recording okay we don't do that we're just <laughs> recording um so you sit at that bench and no matter what age you are you're talking the same language the rec hall is always the rec hall the mess hall six is always the mess hall six shower house is always the shower house and so whether you're 70 or you're 17 or you're seven you understand the language that's being spoken, but it's also a secret language because if you talked, if you went into town and said a story about mess hall six to somebody, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. So it's part of creating this brotherhood and this fraternity. And so these guys would come and they would just sit and they would tell their stories. And one summer, you know, I'm sitting there at lunch and, and I think it was Barry Feldman. I said, Hey, I haven't seen Diz. Is, is he around? And they're like, yeah, Diz is uh, under the weather. He's uh, dealing with some illness. He's not going to make it this summer. Okay. And uh, I didn't know at the time how serious that actually was. And Diz would pass away not too long after that. But it was in that moment that I saw that, look, we're all going to die. You can't get past that. We all lose that battle eventually. And it wasn't that Diz was gone. But it was that no one's going to sit at that bench and tell Diz's stories. That was the piece. That's what it clicked. And so what the project needed to be was not just catch the history. It was catch our stories because our stories are the real history of camp. Camp's not about what year we built the rec hall or what year we started printing the Warriors with hard covers or what year we won that softball game with that one ball. That doesn't matter. It's all amazing stuff, but that's not what camp is. Camp is my story and your story and everybody's story just laid out in the end like a big quilt. And when you look at that quilt, that is the story of Camp Ojibwa. And that's when it hit. So you then became the... Well, so I, I came up with an idea enough that I could write it down and explain it and basically have what they would call an elevator pitch in the business. To who? Well, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, I needed to, because I knew that as much as I wanted to do it, it was going to be a big undertaking. And unfortunately, it wouldn't be the kind that could be done without any money. <laughs> it would need some, some support. Um, but first, I needed to make sure it was the right idea and that some important people supported it. And so I had a, I had a sort of a quiet conversation with Elliot one-on-one and I told him what, you know, some things I was thinking about. And, uh, he said, you know, that it wasn't really, that's not his thing so much, but he liked it and thought that it was a, certainly a reasonable thing to happen. And so, uh, and I'd had a conversation with Futransky about it same kind of a thing just sort of hey you know I'm thinking about some ideas about doing this and what do you think and he he also said the same he actually really liked it and so I found a great moment where uh I should say and you touched on it a minute ago but uh we have shared many cigars over the past 17 years um in various places and most of the problems of the world I think that we've solved have happened over a cigar from time to time and so I was coming out you had asked me to come up to on your house uh, on the porch to have a cigar at camp. At camp, which is unusual. Sandy must not have been in town. No. <laughs> uh, and as it turned out, George Sachs was there too. Uh, and, I, and I rolled over in my head 
whether or not this was the right moment to approach you about it. Because I knew that I needed, if George was going to be there for that conversation, <laughs> I need to make, to make sure he liked it too. I didn't need to have someone already saying no while I was telling you about it for the very first time. Um, and I just, I, I just sort of started talking about it a little bit and he lit up like a Christmas tree. And once I saw I had him going with it, I thought this is great. And so I just laid it all out. And that was the first conversation we had about what How it did I be. respond? Uh, you were very, well, actually you said, George, are you saying you'd give money to this thing? And George is like, yeah, I'd help give money to support it. <laughs> and you said, okay, well, that sounds like something. And then we, and then that's when the, the bubbles started percolating. It's like, well, well, shit, we've got all this stuff. We've got stuff everywhere. Why don't we put it together? Like I've got old warriors out in the thing. And Ellen Novak gave us this big box of stuff from her dad. And, and that's when the idea started going. And so that was the moment that the yeast got mixed into the flour and everything began to rise. And that was, uh, that was in the summer of 2014. And over the next few months, uh, groundwork was laid and a plan was made uh, about sort of how to approach it. Because one of my first big questions, one of the first big questions to deal with was, is this something camp should just pay for and fund um, or not? And I felt very strongly from the day one, not. A, I felt like, well, honestly, I felt like camp would fund it to a point and that might be the end of it. And I felt like there was a lot of work and it could be the kind of work that could open up into more and more stuff. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to risk just having a cutoff with it. And B, I didn't want, quite frankly, I didn't want there to be any sort of creative control put on what I was going to find. Because I didn't know what the podcasts were going to look like. I didn't know what the stories I would hear would be. And I thought it was very possible I would hear stories that People would want edited or removed or not said, you know. But to me, it was more about all those stories are still part of the big story, good or bad. And so um, mostly I thought that I want people who are camp people, I want to create a way for them to invest in the project, to support it, so that they're not only financially supporting it, but they're personally invested because of it. And so um, what that would eventually turn into is camp became generous, became generous. Camp was generous enough to offer us the brick space by the Collegiate Week bench and let us sell commemorative bricks and use the proceeds. How'd that turn out? It turned out pretty well. I think it's pretty safe to say. It's awesome. It's awesome. The bricks look amazing. And, uh, and the, the spot. Oh, it's the greatest spot at the greatest place. Like I said, that bench has been there for, <laughs> since the, literally the very beginning of camp. Um, and also the support that came from those bricks really made a lot of what the History Project has done possible. So we set up a meeting. Uh, I like this. This is a little inside baseball, but this was great. So you reached out to some of the people who might be involved if, we, if there was going to be financial support early on. And you said, I want to have a little meeting. And you talked to me about coming in and pitching to these people what it would be. And would they want to do it? That didn't and, go very well. Well, <laughs> for whatever reason, uh, the people in that circle started dropping off pretty quickly and not interested. And um, I got a, we'll say an anonymous phone call. And it was just a phone call to let me know that, hey, just so you know, I think this thing may be being seen the wrong way. And I think you're, you're losing support right away pretty quickly. And you got to figure that out. So you and I talked and... Uh, that obviously wasn't anybody's plan, but 
we also realized that no one knew what it was yet either. No one understood what this thing was. And even though I had these highfalutin ideas about wanting people to sort of be a part of it, there was nothing there to be a part of yet. So it was hard to explain to anyone. So we switched gears. And instead of me coming in and pitching to people, we set up 10 interviews, which would eventually be the first 10 episodes of this podcast. And we were, uh, we tried to choose people who both were on the list of people that I wanted to interview, but also people who I knew would connect to other people. And that if I was able to have a successful interview with them and talk to them and, and they could see what it was about, that they would tell other people who would then tell other people. And then the word would be around, oh, this is actually a pretty cool thing. But so, that was the podcast. Well, that, well, the History Project was the podcast in the beginning. But there was also... There was always other plans. Right. But the podcast was really the piece that, that kicked it off. And so that started. And after the first 10, great. They went fantastically. I was thrilled with it, and the guys who were there got it, understood it, and at that point, a little bit of uh, financial support started coming in and making it more possible. Um, I was fortunate enough to just be breaking up with a live-in girlfriend, so I had some freedom and some ability to come here and spend a long period of time and start doing more interviews and talking to more people. And then the other piece, but it's expanded more than that. Well, um, the other pieces of the puzzle then started to come to play. So, the four phases in the beginning. No, were... I'm talking. I'm talking about your travels around the country. Well, we're, we're months. But that ahead. was podcasts. The four phases in the beginning were going to be the podcast, the website, a future book. Originally planned to be two books, but a book. And then a pipe dream, a long in the future, this will probably never happen, but hopefully someday we'll be able to have a permanent space at camp that we can have a museum. So what would it be called? <laughs> well, probably just the Camp Ojibwe History Museum. It seemed to fit you in with the Camp Ojibwe History Museum. Well, I don't want to give away the end of the story, but I think there's a pretty good shot. Oh, So by the time I started camp that year, I started the podcast with the first week of camp on purpose. And the year 2015. And uh, started the website. And the cool thing about the website was I, I already had probably 50 or 60 of the warriors from various years. And I'd already started to collect things from people. Because I realized if I was going to talk to people, that people would have stuff. And they might want to either give it to the museum or at least let me look at it and see it and, and take pictures of it and let it be a part of the thing we could share with everyone. And I also realized that we, we camp from previous to 1956 have almost no pictures except for the all camp photo. Other than those all camp photos, we have basically zero pictures of camp, but everyone had a few. So all I would have to do is collect as I'm going around to these people, you know, copy, scan, whatever, those few and start putting them together and they could all be in one place. So by the time the website launched the same summer, I already had tons of pictures and I had tons of warriors and I had video and I had, I had old videos that I was able to, to transfer and, and Barry Feldman's dad, Monty Feldman, had video going back into the 30s that we were able to put up online. And it was growing by leaps and bounds. And people dug it. And they were reaching out to me. Hey, man, I've got this stuff. Let me give you this stuff. And I get a random package at camp. And it's got two bar mitzvah jackets in it. And it's like, put those in the museum. And it just starts pouring in. So much stuff that by visiting weekend that year, I was able to put together an ad hoc museum in the counselor's lodge. People came. It was awesome. Uh, Futransky had had the green truck redone at that point. So we set up the green truck. We did photo ops with the green truck. It was incredible. And having the parents come through the museum 
tuned them into what it was and what we were doing, and it grew the podcast. So by the by the end of that summer, there were probably 200 listeners every episode, which is a pretty good number considering that the whole audience really isn't that huge. And so the podcasts go, and I start planning for what's the next piece of the puzzle going to be. I know I'm going back to New York for six more months. I'm going to go work Santa Land for the last time. But come January, I have no plan. And I start concocting this idea. And while I'm at camp that summer, I find this incredible golden van, this beauty, this plush, pristine, gorgeous, a woman of an age. Lucille. And Lucille is, it comes into my life. And uh, <laughs> she, she just took me by storm right away. So I, I purchased Lucille and she became my, my vehicle. And so the pieces were in place now. And I thought that I was going to make a couple of road trips and go specifically to see a few guys. And the more guys that started adding to the pile of guys to interview, the more dots I connected on the map, I soon came up with a 48-state, 16,000-plus-mile road trip to go around. 2015. February 1st of 2016, nine weeks on the road, recorded over 40 podcasts, and it was incredible. And it literally was just going state to state, finding camp guys from all over, in all eras. I found Joe Bine, who we didn't know prior to the project. Joe Bine reached us cold through the website. And come to find out, we thought that Marshall Domash had been our last remaining original camper, but Joe Bine was an original camper. And Joe Bine's dad was one of the two architects who helped Al lay out the cabins, interior and exterior, lay out the layout of camp, and also lay out the interiors of the buildings. I believe he signed up to come to the... He uh, is. He's coming in. OJ90. Yeah. He's, and he's hilarious. My How favorite thing. He? He's Well, now he's 94. He was 93. And he had emailed me about some stuff. I said, Joe, so I emailed wait, him. Where does he live? He lives in uh, L.A. So are you telling me that a 94-year-old man mm-hmm. who started camp in 1928 is coming into the OJ90 reunion, mm-hmm. and I get some guys that live here that don't know if they can make it? Well, do you have those names for me? <laughs> no. Are we bringing back the shit list? Um, it never went away. So I go to L.A. Joe Bine. Joe Bine. And uh, I'm going to be there in like the end of March. And late February, mid-February, I email him. Hey, Joe, here's what I'm thinking. I'd love to come out. love to talk to you do an interview. What do you think about that? He said, Chris, I'm 93 years old. I don't know if I'll be here in March, but if I am, you can come. And it was phenomenal. We had an amazing time. And he was and he was a total sweetheart. And he gave me a ton of stuff. He said, look, my whole family, we moved out here in 35 and we never moved back. My kids, my grandkids, none of them even know I went to camp. They don't want any of this stuff, so take it all. And he gave me some incredible stuff. And you're going to see some of that if you come to the OJ90. I've got some of it on display. And the tri- And so the trip was made up of stories like that. Every guy I met had a different story. Whether it's Sandy DeVore whether it's Rusty Zwick, when I told Rusty Zwick that Ellen Weinberg had a little thing for him, and this man, 50 years later, turned into a 12-year-old boy in front of me as he freaked out and almost spilled his drink because he got so nervous thinking about it. He freaked out when I told him at camp. <laughs> it was, and it was just piece after piece after piece. And so the project, again, took a step and made it even bigger. And I got to see the influence because a lot of these guys, there's a lot of guys here in the North Shore who went to camp, whose dads went to camp, whose grandparents went to camp, whatever. And they're connected, but part of it is proximity helps them stay connected. But a guy like Joe Bine, who moved to L.A. 
1935. Why would he ever get reconnected to camp? But he did. And a guy like Paul Keishan, who hasn't been connected to camp in many, many years. But I call him up, and we connect, and all of a sudden we're talking about camp, and it's right there. I saw guys who hadn't been to camp in 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. And it was all it was just these different pieces of the puzzle, and it was all part of the influence of what this amazing place is. And so I come back from this trip, and I've got all this, and now it's just even better. So I come back to town, and I start doing more interviews. And we start amassing enough stuff, and we start talking about isn't it about time for another camp reunion? And we play with, we, we, we count out the numbers and we look at it and we decide that, you know, this coming summer is the 90th summer. We need to find a way to celebrate that. And the History Project has really stirred up a lot of fun, interest, love for camp again, gotten some guys back into the fold, gotten some passion going. Uh, let's put it all together. Let's have another reunion. Plus, didn't we find out that we, there's only 17 uh, people, camp, former campers still alive from the 30s? Uh, yes. So the population is just dwindling and we want to do it as quickly as possible. That is correct. We've gotten corrections all the time, right? People telling us this isn't our 90th year. We never said it was. We said it's our 90th summer. And that is correct. If you do the math uh, and for anyone who's ever gone to camp, you, you know, you know how that, that works. But basically count your summers and you'll be there. And that's exactly what it was. We um, we we had just lost. We thought we had just lost our only original camper. We now know we, we have one left. But of the guys, any of the guys before 1940. We think there's only about 17 or 18 alive. And that's our, our first 12 years of camp. So um, so that was definitely a piece of it. Let's get it together and let's, let's you know, before we lose them. The 100th is great, but the 100th is 10 years away. So we talked about OJ90. And then I said, you know, I started to look at, I am no longer in New York. And... Uh, I left New York to sort of figure out some stuff I wanted to do. And one of those things I wanted to do, I thought, was be more a part of camp. Find a way to be more a part of camp. And between the History Project and the upcoming reunion, it started to make sense for me to just be here for this year. And secretly, it made sense for me to be here because it would let me learn if I could live in Chicago, in the Chicagoland area. Um, because if I was going to be a more permanent part of camp, I would have to. It wouldn't be reasonable to. So are you a more permanent part of camp? Well, as it turned out, I did come here. I have now uh, lived here for several months. And while I hear this was a pretty easy winter, uh, it was tolerable and I made it. <laughs> so, uh, so yes. And uh, earlier this year, I was offered a year-round position with Camp Ojibwa, um, which I happily accepted. Are we still trying to figure out what it means? <laughs> Well, you know, you're here on the mic. What's uh, what? What does it mean? Do we have, do I have a title? Uh, what would you like? Well, I would like it to be associate director. How about if I call you the associate director? <laughs> That'll do. And what what am I going to do? Whatever I ask. <laughs> Whatever Joel needs. Yeah, exactly. I uh, found out that you're a member of a certain club. <laughs> well, I'm a member of a few clubs. Uh, but we're not going to talk about the Ojibwa Slam here. No, what? we're talking about Mensa. Oh, sure. Although, and... What do you mean, sure? Well, sure. Listen, you know. What do you mean, sure? Listen, I know. I don't think being a Mensa member is necessarily on the qualifications for for the job, though. Well, it does show that you have some basic intelligence. A little, yeah. Which I, is probably a good criteria for the job. I can get myself out of a paper bag if I have to. But you combine that. I mean, you combine your intelligence with your creativity, with 
uh, with your passion, with your bullshit, with your demeanor, you know. So I, uh, we felt that the time was right to continue this on. So we, we left off about uh, the podcast and where it lists. I want to jump a little bit now. Sure. The book is going to take care of itself. Yes. So coming Tell me in the about fall, the museum. Uh, so the pipe dream was the museum, and mostly because we don't build a lot of new buildings at camp, and there really wasn't an existing building where it would be feasible to have a museum, especially not a permanent one. So even at the best, I thought, well, this is really not realistic, you know. Um, but the more we talked about it, the more it seemed like it was the time. And you, you approached a couple of guys, one, in, one specifically, and sort of talked about what we were looking to do. And I gave him a title. You gave him a title. But you also, more importantly than that, you sort of like got his read on the situation. Right. And that was what, what was important. Well, he's a person that uh, loves camp and wanted to contribute in any way he wanted. So I thought this might be a perfect situation for him. And I asked him if he'd become the executive director of the Camp Ojibwe. Uh, museum and he said what does that mean and I said you raise the money <laughs> and he said I'd be glad to yes so today is what's the day today uh, today is April 22nd and you know what's going on at camp as we speak I believe that we're putting up walls as we speak the camps the uh, museum is being built as we speak yeah uh, it's it's amazing and, and and in many ways a dream come true honestly it was the camp uh, well, and for me, but for camp, for sure. It was the end of a road that, I, you know, I thought would be a very long drive. And now it's just going to be another piece of what it's going to be. And so if you're listening and you're thinking, well, that's great. You, you built a building and you're going to stick all that crap you found there. Oh, no. It's not that. No, and more than that, it's not done. And it's not going to be done. Well, it's a growing. should never be complete. Exactly. It's it an ever-growing be, project. You know, evolving and growing and change and we'll, we'll live through that you know whether we get temporary exhibits permanent exhibits uh it'll just continue to grow it's just uh it's a great legacy yeah i couldn't be more thrilled with it i mean the response has been awesome uh, your participation's been great and it's been particularly uh involved with the oj90 i mean the correlation between the oj90 and the museum wasn't pre-planned but it's just just a great way for us to promote it. Right. Speaking of promoting, do you know that we have a, you mentioned earlier, an unbelievable family camp, post camp, <laughs> that's still going on? Uh, I, I, I know that. I, I, help, uh, I help get it going. Um, and are you saying that there are still slots available for this year's? We have a limited number of enrollments uh, availabilities right now, but we'll talk about that later. I'm starting to think that maybe this should be more than a one-time sit-down. <laughs> but I, th I think you've done a terrific job. I'm going to skip a, a little bit right now. Well, if I can just put – can you hold that for one second? I want to put one button on the podcast conversation, if I can. Sure. Uh, this is the 100th episode, and obviously we're doing something a little different because of that. Um, but more important than the little difference, we've, the wrinkle we've put in today, uh, I couldn't be more proud of the fact that we got 100 of these. That, and, it, and 100 is not just 100 people because several of them were multiple people. But that we got, we were able to sort of get 100 of these stories down. And people constantly talk to me about 
I've listened to all of them or, well, I don't listen to all of them, but I listen to all for my age group or whatever. It doesn't matter. If, if you listen to one, that's all it's about. Like just share the stories and feel the love of camp because that's what it is. This place is amazing. And this amazing place has helped create amazing people who have incredible stories. And I'm so proud that we've gotten this far and here's to going on down the road and doing a hundred more. So you like to end your, uh, your podcast with a favorite story. <laughs> do you have an, do you feel like you'd like to share a favorite story? A favorite story? Uh, well, I do have one I like. Uh, <laughs> I did think about this a little bit. That's not the titty pink guy. <laughs> uh, I mean, that could be one too. So for those of you who are familiar with the Eagle River area, you know that there is an establishment known as a lovingly just called Frontier. But its full name is, of course, Carrie Wilde's Frontier Tavern. And at Carrie Wilde's Frontier Tavern, one can um, go and pay to see women dance on a stage. No pole, but dance on a stage. And it's pretty dark, to be fair. So I'd only heard rumors of this place. And believe me, when you only hear rumors of it, it is the foulest place you can imagine. Like, I was told that you can bring your own talcum powder and they'll blow smoke signals for you. Or you can bring your own ping pong balls. And I mean, I just really, you know... Uh, that that's the kind of place it was. So uh, an older, I won't rat anybody out, but a couple of guys who were a little older at camp, uh, we made a plan to head out there. And so uh, we stopped in town at Smugglers, had a couple of adult beverages to get going, and then headed out to Carrie Wilde's Frontier Tavern. The first thing that you notice about Carrie Wilde's Frontier Tavern when you walk in is that there are no, uh, what you would normally consider maybe an attractive girl, that those aren't really there. I would say that on that given night, on a scale of 1 to 10, the most attractive dancer was probably a, a solid 5. Fine, we know what we're in for. We're having some drinks, everything's great. There's this one dancer, though, and she's sort of like avoiding dancing, it seems like. like she maybe skipped her turn or whatever. But she's finally dating us with her presence on the stage. And this young lady is, um, uh, I don't want to be too indelicate here, but she's very chesty and that's clearly her, the, the piece of her show that is most appealing, but she's also um, very round in the belly. <laughs> Extremely. Uh, she is not going, what, what we would find out, she's not going to get naked. She just sort of uncovers her breasts and that's her thing, which is good for everyone in the room. Um, at this point in the night, we had all gone and we were sitting right on, right around the stage. And, and where the stage is there, you literally can just, you are right up against it. It's very literally in your face. She starts uh, sort of sitting down in front of guys and, and unfurling her breasts. And, and that's the whole, that's her whole bit, right? So she's going down the line, down the line, and she gets in front of me. And I'm really not interested in tipping her. I'm not really, I'm like, this is fine. And she grabs my head and pushes it into the area between her breasts, squeezing them deep, very tightly around my head and, and doing a lot of shimmying and shaking. The next day, when I woke up, I had um, a little bit of an infection going on in my eye. <laughs> Not unlike conjunctivitis, which, uh, which commonly is known as pink eye, but of course I had the very rare strain of TPE, of course, titty pink eye, because I had gotten it because of the other guys... <laughs> whose faces had been on the breast just before mine. Did you tell your mother? <laughs> well, she'll find out after she listens to this. Uh, my favorite part was, though, we have, a, we have a camp medical director, George Sachs. And, of course, because I clearly had a medical emergency, you said we should call George and, and figure out what to do about this because he's our medical director. And when you called, uh, 
I hear you explaining it all. And then, you, you know, you said, Chris has this, he has the titty pink eye. And then you said, so if George is there, can I talk to him? Because I realized you had told all that to Karen Sachs, wife of our medical director, George Sachs. Yes, so that was the titty pink eye story. All right, one more, and then we're going to wrap it up. So it's my first year at camp, and I am a dating nurse, as we've said. And without being too, uh, again, indelicate toward, uh, again, she's a lovely girl. But she was um, conservative, I think it's safe to say. There was, I, there was first base, there was second base, so occasionally third base, but no one was going home. Fine. Uh, so one afternoon, uh, I went over to the infirmary, and there was other stuff. All the events were going on. You know, everyone was out and about, and she didn't have to be anywhere, so we were in her room fooling around a little bit. And um, all of a sudden, we hear a commotion out in the hospital, and a kid has fallen on his water skis and, like, split his lip wide open, broken a tooth or something. He's going to need a stitch. Like, it's, ugh. And she's, she's like, oh my gosh, I, go I was like, you're, you're not wearing clothes. You can't really, like, we, we can't go in there right now. Like, we just got to be quiet. <laughs> and hopefully no one comes rushing in here looking for you. Uh, and so we basically sit there quietly naked, somewhat still making out, but also listening to this poor kid get a stitch in his lip, the whole process. And George comes in and he does the stitch and it takes about 30 minutes, this whole thing. Finally, they leave. And I guess it was the, the, pent up excitement of the moment when they're going to finally be gone and we can sort of, you know, go back to what we were doing with full force that we go back with such vigor that about a moment later and we're in the top bunk, the bedboard breaks completely in half and we fall through the bed, which is great. And I think is the most hilarious thing that's ever happened and whatever. So, uh, but I'm like, Oh my God, now we have a problem because no one's supposed to know this is going on. And, and now you've got a broken bed so it happens to be Friday, as it turns out. And so I go back to my cabin, everybody. She goes back to her business. We all get cleaned up. We head to Friday night dinner. And just as you start to speak that evening, I sneak out the back door, walk into the back of cabin two, steal a bedboard, walk all the way around behind the mess hall, behind the helps quarters, all the way around the back way by the lake court, all the way to the infirmary to put the new bedboard in. And no one ever knew. It was great. Well, Chris... This has been fantastic. There's usually one other question that you ask at the end. I'm supposed to ask you another question? <laughs> yeah. How, did, how does Camp Ojibwe affect your life? Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever listened to one of these podcasts, but when you do, typically at the end I ask two things. One, I ask you to tell me a great story, but I also ask, well, what I say is, you know, how is, after a long life or whatever, how has Camp Ojibwe affected your life? If people don't understand how Camp Ojibwe has affected your life by now, then this podcast has been shit. Chris, how has Campo Jubal affected your life? Uh, after that introduction, what can okay. I possibly say? Good answer. Hold on. <laughs> I would say it is too easy to say that Campo Jibba changed my life completely. That would be too simple. In 1995, uh, well, 1994, I went to college. My parents took me down to school on a Friday and dropped me off. And uh, we unloaded all my stuff, moved into the dorm room, got set up the next morning, Saturday. My parents called and said, hey, how'd it go? You, you settled in? Yeah. Uh, so we found out that the tumor that your dad just had checked out is malignant. Okay. I don't know what that means. Well, it means he has cancer. Oh, okay. And uh, so over the course of the next two months, this tumor that was a small egg shape on the side of his uh, right stomach would grow 
till it was the size of a basketball, both interior and exterior, sticking out of his side like literally someone had glued a basketball onto the side of him. And uh, in October, they go in and they, I mean, they took tons of pictures of him because it was an unseen medical case. It was a textbook case. And they were just going to do what they could because no one had ever dealt with this. And they scoop out this tumor and they uh, take muscles from his back and sew them around the front to try to just hold all his guts in. And and uh, it's just a, a crazy operation that no one had done before. And you couldn't expect him to do it perfectly. It was whatever. But they said they got it all. He's in great shape. It's going to be a long healing process because of all the, all the butchering. But he's going to be okay. And... Uh, January, we found out he wasn't. It, there was cancer back in his bloodstream. And so within a few months, uh, my dad passed away. And I was a young man who hadn't really needed to carry any weight yet. And I learned very quickly I was now going to have to carry a lot of weight, whatever that meant um, personally. And so it was a long process for me to deal with it personally and, and to sort of grow up very quickly. And I did those things and, and think I did them okay. But when I got to camp, I realized that I was missing something that I hadn't even known I was looking for. And while it's so easy to say, well, you're just missing a father figure or whatever, it was more than that. It was, it was a, an anchor that I didn't have. And that's what camp did for me. And I've spent every day since then thinking about how I could pay camp back for everything it's given to me. And everything it has been to me because it did change my life and it continues to constantly. And so what I hope is that the history project is some semblance of payback. I hope that I've given back to camp at least some degree of everything camp has given me. Well, you're also the type of person that doesn't promote yourself. And so one, one of the great values of this uh, conversation that we're having is for people to get a clear picture of who you are and uh, what you are and what not only do you mean to camp but what you mean to the the future of camp and uh, so uh, I, I, could, I can't thank you enough for being at camp. Chris this was great. Uh, I w- want to thank you for asking me to interview you. Um, <laughs> I still think you're overpaid but I know that everyone out there will love hearing what camp means to you and Uh, some of your travails as you've gone from leaving a voice message, which is the reason that I hired you, which you never said. Uh, I hired you because I liked your telephone message. You're wacky, and that's exactly what I needed. Um, I'm glad that some of that hasn't changed. Your contributions are awesome, Chris. Thank you. Uh, The amount of effort you put into this project in OJ90 is sensational. Thank you. This has been a great time. It it really has. A place that is fine and free. A room where I can think to myself when nobody's needing me. And then I'll find my way again. And I will sing my song. Okay. That is it. Another one in the books. Hope you enjoyed it because it was awesome to me, and I've known the fellas since uh, 2000. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop Chris a line at Christopher at org. 
Or if you want, drop me a line at campojibble at AOL.com. All right. You know what? It's a nice day. I'm headed out on my patio. Smoke a cigar. Thanks for listening.